We are New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. A community church in the city of Chicago, all over the city, for the good of the city. Right now, we are in the middle of our series, Philippians. A study through this letter and its powerful application to our lives and becoming more like Christ. Wherever you're listening, I hope you are blessed by this message. Good morning, New Life Rogers Park. It is good to be here with you today. Thank you so much to our worship team for leading us in time of worship. Now we get to dive into God's word together through preaching and hearing his word read and explained to us. So today is Confession Sunday. I have to let you behind the scenes a little bit and give you a confession, okay? I'm gonna be honest with you a little bit this morning. I love writing sermons, and I love taking a passage of scripture and reading it and getting to know it and studying it and breaking it down and putting it back together and seeing how it all fits together with the rest of the Bible. And I love making applications to our lives today. But here's the confession. The part where I go blank is when I have to come up with an introduction, a story about someone or something that parallels what the Bible is saying in that passage and helps get our imaginations engaged with it. Now, I know because this is not exactly a typical sermon introduction and story, maybe I have really lost, you know, 50%. I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. But that's my confession this morning. It's hard for me to come up with something. So I thought this week, since it was a little bit more difficult than usual even, I'd just tell you that and just let you in on how things are going in my head. So here's a spoiler alert. Today's sermon is about putting others above yourself. It's about caring for and loving excuse me, others in the way that Jesus did. So what did I do this week when I sat down to write my introduction for this week's sermon? I googled stories about putting others above yourself. That's my air quotes. That's literally what I typed into Google. Stories about putting others above yourself. I mean, I thought this week would be an easy one. Like, man, this is going to be the easiest sermon introduction ever. There's going to be thousands of stories about humble, you know, self-denial, you know, courageous, like doing the right thing, loving others. So I Google stories about putting others above yourself. And the very first Google hit was this statement. Quotations again. This is exactly what it said. Stop putting others above yourself. So I was a little confused, I was a little stunned actually. I got interested, I clicked on it. And it was an article titled, Are You Putting Others Above Yourself? Well, you need to stop. You're important too. That was the article title. I thought, man, that's not exactly what I was looking for. Maybe a great article, I didn't read it. Not what I was looking for though. So I clicked on Google News. You know, you can search like, everything on the web, but then you can focus on news. I was like, you know what? After 2020 pandemic year, essential workers year, there's got to be a a news story about others 
you know, about people putting others above themselves, about humility and selflessness in 2020. So click on that news section. And what was the first hit under the news section? It was another article. And this one was titled, How to Be Selfish at Work and Why It Matters. What? I was like literally an article telling me how to be selfish. Did you like that? That was a little Galen Holcomb voice for you. What? You know, as if I didn't already know how to be selfish. How to be selfish at work and why it matters. Now, what shocked me most in all of this was that I really wasn't that shocked. We swim in the water of self-help, self-preservation, self-absorption, self-protection. Do many people watch Netflix? I'm not really sure, but here's a little comparison. Netflix right now is worth about $10 billion. The self-help industry right now is worth about $11 billion. I don't even know what all that includes. I mean, it's a genre like different books and things. $11 billion. We love thinking about how to better ourselves, advance ourselves, move forward and increase our status and platform. Why is it so hard to find examples of selfless, humble, others first kind of people? And in reality, I've got lots of examples. I thought about people this week from our church, people in my small group that me and my wife host in our house. I thought about people like you that model this lifestyle all the time. In reality, I've got lots of examples. And that's more real to me than what I find on the internet. But the internet can still give us a good gauge on where our culture, our society, our world is at in 2021. Taking care of yourself, prioritizing your health, your resting, your being courageous in resolving conflict or confronting others who are wronging you, all of that is important. And I don't want to belittle the importance of those things. But in reality, our tendency is to preserve ourselves, think about ourselves, fixate on ourselves. The water we swim in is self-obsession, and it goes against a powerful, powerful current to practice self-denial for the sake of others. We need help. I know it's kind of a long and you know, funny kind of behind-the-scenes look at what it was like to write this sermon this week. But it really made me think, like, man, we need to hear the words of God when it comes to thinking about these things. Because we hear a thousand other words throughout the week, in the news, in the media, all over the place, about how we're supposed to think about these things. But we need God's instruction. We need God's exhortation. And we also need stories and examples of people who are living for the good of others. And thankfully, what Google couldn't provide, Philippians provides. What I missed on my hunt for mentors and selfless humility on Google, I already had found in the book of Philippians in God's word.
Today, we're continuing our series in Philippians. We're diving deep into the book of Philippians. You've heard it the last couple of weeks from Pastor Galen. It's a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to a new church in a pagan society. A society that was bent on self, on preservation of self, on status and money and all these things. Paul was writing to this church, informing them, exhorting them how to live a christ saturated life, a Christ-focused life, a Christ-worshipping life in the midst of the world around them. We're studying that book this morning, and we need it more than ever. And you heard it. You heard a couple weeks ago a captivating retelling of the Church of Philippi, how Paul planted it, how Paul himself was this wild-eyed, passionate missionary who planted this church in Philippi. And we heard about a young woman named Lydia who converted to Christ. And we saw a direct parallel to our own context right here in Rogers Park. We need this letter. And last week we heard about how God works through weakness and suffering and hardship to advance the gospel and our joy in it. A prison cell became a pulpit. Paul, he found himself under house arrest in Rome writing this letter. Chained to a guard, a prison cell became his pulpit. And it really made me think that we need this letter, this word, and specifically today's word in Philippians chapter 2, more than ever. So if you would, open your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2, and I exhort you to look and follow with me. It will bless you three times as much, I believe it, if you actually open up God's Word in your home right now, wherever you are, and read it with us, look at it with us, study it with us, as I read and explain to you what's going on in this passage. So let's do that. Let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verse 1 of Philippians. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Now let's just stop there for a second. The first thing we're called to do here is to count the blessings of life in Christ. Remember, this letter is written by that courageous, passionate, wild-eyed man suffering in prison for the sake of Christ. He's literally writing this letter on death row, and he's told us that we will also suffer. The Philippians were partners in the gospel. They were partners in this ministry that had taken Paul to prison. They were on the same team, fighting the same battle, defending the same faith. And I'm sure it was scary. Because Paul was in prison for a reason. And he calls them partners in it. One of my friends here, maybe you've met him, his name is Joseph. He's a Packers fan. Joseph, Packers fan, that kind of narrows it down. There's one person in your mind, and you know exactly who I'm talking about. He told me the other week that uh, actually the Packers don't have an owner. 
they he's a part owner. It's like a stock system or something, right? Like where he pays in a little bit, like just a little bit of money and gets to own a share of the team. Paul is calling the Philippians sharers, participants in the gospel. They hold the stake in this thing that put him in prison. So they already know that they are at risk. But Paul went on in chapter 1 to tell them that they would suffer. We see some hard exhortations, some hard words at the end of Philippians chapter 1. Remember verse 27. Paul said, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He said, Stand firm at the end of verse 27. Strive together as one for the faith. And don't be afraid of your opponents, even though you will suffer. In chapter 1, verse 29, Paul said, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Wow. And then he says in verse 30, Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have they are sharers and participants in this gospel that shakes up the world. And so are believers today. The believers, the gospel partners, the friends of Paul, the Philippians, New Life Rogers Park, you, me, followers of Jesus everywhere. We will at some point or another, in some way or another, feel the weight of this world. We will suffer for the sake of Christ. The servant is not above his master. We follow a crucified king. So after hearing that we will suffer with our Lord, we need to be empowered to go forward by remembering the blessings of life in Christ. If the blessing of a mansion and the blessing of, of money and the blessing of fame, if those promises elude us and they don't really get at following Christ. Like those are not things that are promised to Christ's followers. In fact, the opposite is promised. Then we need to think, what are the blessings then? What is the point of following this Christ? What is good that is coming to the children of God? And Paul names those things right here. It's not the blessings that the world sees as blessings. It's encouragement from being united with Christ. It's comfort from his love. It's sharing or fellowship in his spirit. It's tenderness and compassion. It's the kind of blessings that don't just like pamper the body and the, and the physical life here, but comfort and stir up the soul, the mind, the heart. And it looks like they're flowing out of the life of God himself. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. I mean, union with Christ, fellowship in the Spirit, and then comfort from love. And when love is talking, is talked about in Scripture, Paul often refers to the Father. So you've got Father, Son, and Spirit right here blessing the children of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 13 to 14. It sounds really similar. Paul said, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How blessed are the children of God to share in the triune life of God. 
So when you build a house, the first thing you need to do is lay a foundation. God is about to call us to self-denial. He's already prepared us to suffer. And right here in between those exhortations, he's calling us to a stable foundation to simply remember the blessings of life in Jesus Christ. They go far beyond the risk, the pain, the loss of living in a fallen world as a follower of Jesus who renounces riches and comfort for the sake of Christ. Count the blessings of life in Christ and be sustained by his limitless love. But that's not the end. Verse 1 isn't even a complete sentence. It goes on. It leads to something else. Because you have these blessings in Christ, do something. He says, if you have these blessings in Christ. That's rhetorical. What he means is because you do, like it's obvious that you do, then do something. What are we supposed to do? Listen to verses 2 to 4 right now. Then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, count others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Exhortation after exhortation. If you have these blessings in Christ, put others first. That is the command that we see following blessings. The second point of today's sermon, put others first. Verses 2 to four in chapter two. Have you heard that cliche phrase, blessed to be a blessing? That's pretty close to the idea here. Since you have all these blessings, put others first. Following this list of blessings comes a specific striking command. Complete my joy. Now, you may think, um, how do I obey that one? You know, there's kind of some weird commands in the Bible sometimes. Why do I need to complete Paul's joy? What does that even mean? It's the main thrust of this whole passage, so we need to be clear about it. It's a good question. Remember, back in chapter 1, Paul prayed for the church. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. In 1, verses 3 to 4, I had it right here on my screen. There were reasons why he had joy. Their partnership in the gospel, God's work in their lives, and his hope that their love, knowledge, discernment, purity, righteousness, fruit, was increasing and growing in Christ Jesus. So when Paul says, complete my joy, I go back to 1, verse 3. You make my prayer with joy because these things are happening in your life. You're growing in these ways. You make my prayer with joy. So now complete my joy. When he says complete my joy, I think what he means is grow in Christ. Fulfill the prayer that I prayed for you. That's what he means. Stand fast in the gospel. Increase your love, knowledge, discernment, purity, fruit in Christ Jesus. The joy is connected to that prayer but it's also pointing forward to what comes for the rest of these verses, two to four. He explains it. He says, 
complete my joy by doing something. You know, back in chapter one, he prayed that we would grow in Christ, but now he gives us some specific ways to do it. Complete my joy by doing something. By doing what? There's six things here. Stay with me. I know this is a lot, but there's six things that he lists here that, that he says will complete his joy. And when an apostle who saw the risen Lord Jesus says, this is what gets me excited. I think that I want that to get me excited too. I want that to get us excited. So here's six things. Be like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of rivalry or selfish ambition. In humility, value others above yourselves. And the sixth thing, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, let me say a little bit about each one of those things, because they are rich. The first one was be like-minded. Let God affect your entire outlook on life. The second one, having the same love. Be united with your brothers and sisters in the church by one thing. Ultimately, your shared love for Christ. Being of one spirit and of one mind, again, live life together in fellowship with fellow believers who share this Jesus-focused view of life. And then Paul moves into some negatives. Don't do this. Do not do this. What does he tell us not to do? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is an attitude that seeks self-promotion. It's what I call the resume mindset. I mean, I never struggled with this so much as I did when I was graduating, when I was putting together resumes, literally, like thinking about how am I going to get money? How am I going to get a better job? How am I going to secure a better future? It's the resume mindset. Now, of course, there might be seasons and times where you have to think like that in order to provide for your family. But deep down, sometimes it's not just about getting the job, but it's literally a mindset that we stay in. Having already gotten the job, still thinking in those ways. A resume attitude, a resume mindset. How can I get more likes? How can I get more applause? How can I get more envious glances? How can I avoid hearing about the good that other people are getting and start getting other people to hear about the good I'm getting? Envy and pride sometimes aren't just about what we want for ourselves, but it's also a refusal to rejoice in the good of others. It's resume mindset, building up ourselves. Makes me think of the celebrity pastor culture, honestly. Things that might be out of someone's control. I mean, influence can be good. Power and authority can be wonderful when used yeah, in humility, to the glory of God. And yet sometimes something also still feels off with those kind of things. Like how did we get to this point to where we're striving not just to preach Christ, but to be superstars doing it? And it's not old. If you were here last Sunday and you listened to Pastor Galen preach, he talked about how in chapter one, Paul says, some preach Christ. In humility, Some preach Christ out of sheer delight in Christ, and others preach Christ out of selfish ambition. 
even good things, like talking about Jesus, can become corrupted. To make us think about building up ourselves, being better, being higher and more lofty in other people's eyes. And the fifth thing, in humility, value others above yourselves. This command is what made me cringe a little bit when I read that Google headline, stop putting others above yourselves. I mean, it's literally the total opposite of what this text says. Or the other one, how to be selfish at work. And again, I'm not out on a witch hunt, like trying to get you if you use the phrase self-care or something like that. I'm really not. But I do fear that sometimes we'd prefer to avoid biblical self-denial altogether and make it sound pretty by slapping that label on it. These are the words of God. Nothing could be more plain. Count others more significant than yourselves. And to make it even clearer, he basically says the exact same thing again in a slightly different way. And that's the sixth thing. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. There are a thousand ways in daily life to apply that command. Simple, clear. Who's going to get up in the middle of the night with the crying baby? Perhaps the one who looks not to his own interests, but to the other person's interests. Who's going to... Walk the dog today? Who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to give up their seat on the bus for the lady that gets on with a walker and can barely hold herself up and you just want to put your hood on and your earbuds in and just avoid it and pretend like you didn't see it? Or are you going to get up? Say, please have my seat. Who's going to make that phone call to encourage that Christian that they know needs encouragement when it means cutting into your TV time after work. I mean, you're already so tired. It's been a long day. Who's going to sign up for that meal train to bless a brother or sister with a recovery meal? Who's going to give up their alcohol because they know it continues to hurt their spouse and eat their family finances away? Who's going to take the trash out in this zero-degree weather? Who's going to pray silently? No one else knows about it. Asking God for help instead of breaking out in anger at work to a co-worker or at home to a family member. Life presents us with a thousand opportunities, big and small, that give us a chance to practice what it looks like to deny ourselves for the sake of someone else. It really will change your life. Taking out the trash is no longer just about you. Like, man, I don't want it to smell bad in here, so I'm going to do it. But more like, maybe my wife doesn't want it to smell bad in here, so for her, I'm going to do this in the zero-degree weather. That's a small thing, but it can affect your soul in big ways. Or the big ones, the anger, the addictions, things like this, sin and repentance things that we need to give up, not just for our own souls, which we do, but for the sake of others as well. Now, hear me out. I care about you. Jesus 
cares about you. And he assumes that we will love ourselves in a healthy way. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. We're grateful for the lives that he's blessed us with. He's given us dignity beyond what we could ever give ourselves. Created in his image. Made for him. And we need rest in this busy crazy world and we need sabbath and we need private times of prayer and devotion and relaxation just for the sake of enjoying god's creation we really do we need to say no probably more often than we do we can't do everything so in those senses sure we should all use a good biblical dose of self-care I care about your well-being. Paul, in other places, says, keep a close watch on yourself. And you have to provide yourself with the space to be able to guard your heart in that way. But I think this passage, this kind of passage in Philippians 2, really pushes our buttons in ways that aren't usually pushed. And we need to let it. It pushes us. It cuts against the grain of the way that we're trained to think in our current society. It really does. And we need to take it seriously. It's God's word. That's the beauty of preaching straight through a book of the Bible, like Philippians. You can't pick and choose what passage you want to preach. You just preach the next text. We're going from verse 1 to the last verse of the book, and everything in between is fair game. Whatever God says, we say. Whatever God desires, we want to get into our hearts so that we start desiring. So count the blessings of life in Christ and put others first. I really believe that you will never regret loving others. You'll never regret loving someone else. That's what the apostle wants us to see. Paul commands the church to be unified in this way of life. He really does. You will never regret it. You may regret intentional sin. You may regret laziness. You may regret seeking your own interests. But I believe that even if you could love and serve someone so much that it left you on the road for dead, then you wouldn't be far off from your Lord. And that's why you won't regret it. I think of examples in my life of people who do this. Your pastor. No, not me. Pastor Galen, Pastor Corey, Pastor Inyas. And their wives, Danielle, Brooke, Susan. They give up so much. Your small group leaders. Your ministry leaders. And many of you that I know and watch, I watch you as you do this. And you might not even have a place of authority or, or, or ministry or something like that in the formal sense. But I know you do it. I see it. I see it in my parents. I see it in my grandparents. I see it recently so much in my mother-in-law. I see it as she cares. She strains to care for her children and her parents. She has little energy. She has little reason to 
keep going beyond pure love. I love seeing examples of this, and I see them all around me. There's nothing in it for your small group leaders, your ministry leaders. And many of you that I know and watch, I watch you as you do this. And you might not even have a place of authority or, or, or ministry or something like that in the formal sense. But I know you do it. I see it. I see it in my parents. I see it in my grandparents. I see it recently so much in my mother-in-law. I see it as she cares. She strains to care for her children and her parents. She has little energy. She has little reason to keep going beyond pure love. I love seeing examples of this, and I see them all around me. There's nothing in it for someone like that, except the love that Christ puts in their hearts. We need examples of this kind of lifestyle. We don't often point them out, but they are all around us if we have eyes to see. They might not be on Google too much. They might not be in social media too much. They might not be the top headline in a self-care world. But they're all around us in the church and in our families. And ultimately, it is here in the Bible. It is here in Philippians. It is here in chapter 2, probably more than anywhere else in the whole of Scripture. Look what comes next. Verse 5, last point today, last place we're going. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Jesus Christ. Have the mindset of Jesus Christ. You know, in Philippians, Paul, he paints himself as an example of humble joy and service for others, pushing the gospel along in the world. He talks about Timothy at the end of chapter 2. He talks about this guy named Epaphroditus. He lists examples. He does exactly what I just did, pointing out people like my parents, my wife's parents, people I know in the church, my pastors. He does that. But right in the dead center of the book, right here more than anywhere else in the New Testament, he points to one ultimate example of this kind of life. And he says, here's the why. You can't just do this yourself. You can't just muster up your willpower to serve and love other people like the way I'm calling you to without knowing that this is the mindset of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, more than anyone else. It's supremely modeled in him. And it's like he breaks out in song. It's the mindset of Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the place and to the high place and gave him the name above every name. But let's just look there at verses 6 
to eight. This is the life and lifestyle of Jesus. I said it was hard to find a good mentor in selfless humility on my Google search. That person is staring us dead in the eye right here in this text. It's God himself in human form. Jesus, he was God, is God, will be God forever, from eternity to eternity. Jesus is the Son of God. He had fellowship with the Father and the Spirit in the throne room of heaven. He created all things. He even created kings that rule nations and presidents. He created the highest of high people. He's higher than them because he made them. And yet, he came down to a place of dishonor. He was wealthy and he came to a place of poverty. He was high and he came down to a low place. No one had more status, more privilege, more power, more authority, more glory than Jesus. And yet none had more humility, more poverty, more willingness to be made low for the sake of others. So Jesus, fully God, he never lost that. He remained fully God, but he also became something that he was not before. He made himself nothing. Jesus, still being fully God in heaven, when he came to earth, still being fully God, he took on human nature and he became fully human as well. These are the deepest mysteries in the New Testament and Paul is pointing them out to give us a sheer model, an example how to live. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a slave. He humbled himself. And it doesn't stop there. He didn't just humble himself by becoming a servant and a slave. But he made himself a worthless, falsely accused criminal to die on the cross in our place. John Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In John 15, he said, greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. The wasted life, New Life Rogers Park, is a self-absorbed life. And that may look many ways. Could look like self-indulgence, could look like self-isolation, could look like self-shame, could look like workaholism, could look like a number of things. It's the heart inside that is bent in on itself. Your life spent looking in the mirror, building the resume, or falling apart when you see that it's not going the way you planned. The life of joy the life of pleasure and delight, the good life, the flourishing life. It's by living like Jesus. Humbling yourself for the sake of others. That's the why. Jesus, our supreme example. That's what Paul is interested in. He's not just interested in giving you a bunch of commands, command after command that he made up so that you could be a good law-abiding citizen. He's interested in making you look like 
Jesus. And we're interested in making you look like Jesus. And I'm interested in looking like Jesus. Our interest is that we would all become living imprints, living images of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's hard. It's not easy. But man, this text, this passage, this book of Philippians is our handbook, our model, our guide, our map for doing life, living life, thinking about how to endure suffering and affliction, thinking about how to repent from ungodliness, thinking about how to press forward, loving others by doing good, by imitating Jesus, all for the glory of God. That's the landscape of Philippians. Here's the map. Here's the landscape, so to speak, of Philippians. You're on a ship called the Christian life. Suffering is on the horizon. It's promised. It's coming. You're sailing in that direction. And the captain of the ship is calling you to lay down your life for the sake of others. To not only suffer from enemies and opposition and the brokenness of a fallen world, but to go even further and to lay your own life down for others. And where's the encouragement and the power to follow through on something like that? the third summary point today. We count the blessings in Christ. We put others first. And third, last, what I just explained, now I'm revealing it to you. Know that when you do that, you are imitating the king you worship. You're imitating the king you worship. You count your blessings in Christ, put others first, and you know that you're simply walking like Jesus walked. And the best news is how this passage ends. Jesus, again, fully God. He's not merely a man who shows us what it means to be a good person. He's not merely a good person who shows us what it means to die for others. He didn't just die on the cross to be our example. But most importantly, he died on the cross to forgive us of our sin, to take our punishment, to bear our iniquity in his body to forgive us, to reconcile us to God so that then we could have new lives to walk after him, to imitate him, to lay down our lives for others. And that's why this passage ends not just with Jesus died on the cross, go and do likewise, but Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, God raised him. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want the Christian life in summary? It's the way of Jesus. Just a big J curve. J, it's the first letter of Jesus' name. There's a book by a guy I love named Paul Miller. He wrote a book called J Curve to summarize the Christian life. Jesus in heaven going down for the sake of others, even into death, and then rising to new life. He did that for us, ultimately, that we couldn't do it to forgive us of our sins but also to give us a model and an example of how to live for others. As forgiven sinners, how can we also follow in Jesus' steps? As forgiven sinners, how can we live J-curve lives? 
I love that in his book, actually, he talked about the way of boasting. <laughs> Maybe similar to what I said about the resume mindset. It's where your life looks like this. Pretty good, right? It's like a line from beginning to end. You're here, you get here. You're here now, you want to be here. So you do everything you can to get there. It's the boasting lifestyle. Jesus lifestyle is a J. It's not a straight line going from bottom to top. It's a J down into death, up into a new life in Christ. Blessed be his name. Jesus is good. He gives us the model. That's the way. So I just want to end there. We're going to take communion together, actually, um, and let this passage sink in grip us as we think even more about this J-curve life of Jesus. You have been listening to New Life Community Church in Rogers Park. If you have been blessed by this message, please let us know. Now go and live a new life.